You're listening to Cloud9, where Bahaiteachings.org interviews artists from around the globe to learn about what inspires, uplifts, and motivates them to make a positive contribution to the world. My name is Shadi Talui Wallace. Jack Lenz is a producer, composer, and musical director. For over four decades, Jack has been creating music with the intent of uplifting humanity. During his long career, he has composed music for motion pictures, television series, documentaries, and children's programs. He first heard about the Baha'i faith through his university professor in the late 1960s. His professor was the renowned Saskatchewan-based artist, Otto Don Rogers. Since becoming a Baha'i, Jack has devoted his life and extensive musical career to sharing the teachings of Baha'u'llah. In this episode of Cloud Nine, Jack reflects on his life on the road, touring and writing Baha'i-inspired songs for bands like Jalal and Seals and Crofts. He opens up about why he decided to focus on children's music and film scoring, and also reveals the universal themes he believes are crucial for any artist. Welcome, Jack, and thank you so much for joining us on Cloud9. No, it's a pleasure, Shadi. Thank you very much. Now, I know that you came across the faith in the late 60s through your professor in university in Saskatchewan. And I know that that was also a very interesting time in history where people were really exploring various faiths and spiritual practices. I'd love to learn more about your own spiritual journey and how you first heard about the faith and your initial impressions of the Baha'i community. Actually, um, I really thought that Baha'is were artists um, because I found out about the Baha'i faith in uh, Saskatoon, Saskatchewan uh, through a painter uh, who was a Baha'i named Otto Rogers. And Otto was one of my first year profs because I had to take a fine art course as part of my music uh, program at the University of Saskatchewan. And so uh, I spent a year going to um, Otto's classes on, on sort of art and inspiration for art and the history of art. And it wasn't too long into it that I found out um, that he was by far the most interesting person I'd ever met. And I kept... Uh, asking him about sort of where, where did these ideas originate about art and inspiration and uh, unity and uh, all of these things that seem quite universal to me, especially coming from a kind of a Christian background, narrow Christian background in a little town in Saskatchewan as a kid. And I really uh, was attracted to that. So I started to to bug him about it. And he said, well, you know, I'm a professor and I can't really tell you what the source of my ideas. It's a secret. <laughs> it was a secret. <laughs> and so finally he, uh, he relented and invited me to come and meet his family at his home. He had five kids, five beautiful kids and uh, his wife, Barbara, and they had a Baha'i fireside. And that's what I went to. And it was my first Baha'i fireside. And I, I think the only one I needed to sort of uh, tell me that really this was an extraordinary uh, set of teachings and ideas and something that really resonated with me. And I basically went, um, left that house that night, just outside outside the city of Saskatoon. He lived on a little farm. Uh, I left that night and sort of wandered around the streets of uh, Saskatoon uh, singing. I think I was, uh, the song that kept coming to me was uh, Blackbird Singing in the Dead of Night broken wings and learn to fly. And I realized that it was really 
I had just been kind of set on fire <laughs> by this guy. From and, that one night? Yep. Wow. And, and his family and everything. And uh, so that, that really began my journey. And a few months later, I had decided I was not going to continue a school and leave for Toronto and try to make my living as a musician. I said, uh, I told Don, I called Don and told him I was leaving. And he said, well, that's too bad. He said, but why don't I take you to the train station? Because I was taking the train to Toronto. And uh, he just said, look, um, you know, I really want to tell you that if you don't do something about the Baha'i faith, if, if you don't kind of become a member, I'm afraid you'll just kind of get lost, right? And uh, so... <laughs> That's quite, quite bold. Say it as only Don could say it, Don Otto Rogers or Don Rogers, as we called him, uh, because he was just such a sweet guy and so so uh such a pure-hearted soul and a wonderful artist um, he he taught the faith to a lot of baha'is in saskatchewan as yeah. i've as i've lived in canada over the last like six seven years i've learned of so many yeah. people becoming baha'is or hearing about the faith through don rogers absolutely and um so he pulled a declaration card out of his glove compartment of course he had one just sitting yes. there <laughs> and he said uh, just sign here <laughs> i i left that night on the train very uh, happy that I'd done that, and uh, and it, it became really it's it became and becomes my life uh, that moment. And so you moved to Toronto, and mm -hmm. and what happened next? Well, I started um, I started trying to get at gigs, and you know I was a pianist basically, and working as, as a sideman and finding gigs here and there, and then I went home back to Saskatoon to see my family, and. Uh, uh, Otto and uh, Rogers and Barbara and another couple that I met, uh, uh, Douglas Martin and his wife Elizabeth, said, oh, you should really meet these other musicians. You know, we've got some new musicians in the community. And so I met them. And then all of a sudden they were planning this uh, uh, trip for us. Um, we're all relatively new Baha'is to go across the country and play concerts for the Baha'i community. So we started this band called Jalal uh, for the, like the month of glory. And I basically left uh, on this tour for uh, almost a year, full year, in 1970. And we traveled right across Canada and stayed with Baha'i communities all across the country. We did about 300 concerts. Wow, that's amazing. About a thousand um, young people who came to the concerts became Baha'is. And I think we probably played for, I don't know, tens of thousands. They did a... CBC here, the national broadcaster, did a, a documentary about us, um, about our travels and stuff. And so that it was really this simple idea that became something that really turned into like a, kind of a uh, an experiment. Uh, because, you know, you could always tell who the Baha'is were because the community was a little bit older across the country. And they would always be the ones standing at the back of the hall with their hands over their ears. <laughs> 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 they weren't into the rocking out. What kind of music were you playing? Like, what was what was the content of your songs? And who wrote all, them? All based on the writings, but it was primarily sort of done in a in a prog rock kind of style. <laughs> a bit too progressive for some. Yeah, I think there wasn't a song under thirty minutes. <laughs> oh really? Oh my goodness! Yeah, yeah. it was kind of like a Grateful Dead moment. 
Yeah, bits of writings followed by long improvisations. <laughs> That's amazing. It was a, certainly a great training ground for us as young musicians to be able to write music about the faith, to be able to play it every day for people. I, I only realized afterwards what an extraordinary experience it was because I was a relatively new Baha'i. I didn't know a lot. Uh, and uh, anyway, we had an amazing time. And I think we ended up by playing at like a Baha'i National Convention in Halifax at the end of it. And, uh, you know, we just, we met all these extraordinary families across the country and they were just incredible examples of strong family life and great people inspiring. How did the Baha'i community embrace you as, as artists? Oh, oh amazing. Know oh, how to? Oh, for yeah. sure. They were so welcoming and so appreciative that we would come and play there. Even though it might not have been their kind of music, uh, they they loved uh, how it affected people and how we kind of connected with all these young people that they wouldn't have had any access to, right? So it was all self-promoted. It was, you know, the Baha'i community did what they could. And and uh, it's, it gained momentum. And, you know, we even had to do a tour of Quebec and none of us spoke French. <laughs> so, Which was a, probably a big problem back yeah. then. <laughs> so it was it was a great experience, Shadi, and just learning how to adapt to uh, challenging circumstances. And, and uh, but, but what a, an extraordinary way. And that really kind of... Uh, after after that band sort of kept going for about a year and then we just weren't making any money and and I got an opportunity to work with Seals and Crofts and moved to California. But then, then, then it was like watching the same kind of experiment except on a much larger scale, right? Yeah, because they did that, they did that model in the States and all over the world. Yes, yeah. And, you know, we would, we would have, like I remember one night at Nassau Coliseum, we played for 17,000 people and 10,000 people stayed for the fireside. So I heard that they would play their regular set yeah. and then they would invite the audience to stick around for yeah. a fireside. Every, every night. Is that how Exactly. It and every night Jimmy and Dash would, uh, and their whole uh, you know organization would pay thousands of dollars to keep the hall open for another hour. You can imagine what that would cost in terms of unions and everything and crew. They, they, they pay for everybody so that we'd give everybody about you know, I don't know, 20 minutes before we came back out so people could leave and not feel that they were being pressured at all. Uh, but then the people who would stay would stay and, and, and listen, and Jimmy and Dash and I usually did the firesides. Could you share what a, a fireside is? Sure, I, I, and I don't even know that it was a fireside because there weren't there, were, there was no room for questions. <laughs> we just uh, mm -hmm. uh, Jimmy would talk and or Dash would talk and then I would talk. And the three of us would sort of do a few minutes each, uh, and then uh, we'd leave because there was no way of interacting with that many people, you know. And yeah, we, but you would just share a bit about. What would you share? Well, we talked like, about what, the, what the origin of the faith, the fact that, that it had a founder named Baha'u'llah, and that we uh, that we would then talk about how the you know uh, how the faith had been established in the world, about what what its promises were for uh, the future, um, how these uh, Jimmy and Dash would often talk about how their songs were inspired, and they used writings in the faith, and they made references to songs like Hummingbird and. Uh, we may never pass this way again as being kind of anthems of the core inspirational uh, teachings of the faith. Um, but, you know, it was very uh, common then because they mentioned Baha'u'llah in all their records. Uh, they had, they had, uh, they mentioned Baha'u'llah at these firesides. Uh, 
uh, you know, there was just, there was no fear. It was completely open and, and it seemed to be almost a, a more receptive time in some ways. Um, it was, a seven, it was a, as I called it, the halcyon days of the 70s. <laughs> and unlike uh, the Jalal experience where the Baha'is were the ones standing at the back with their hands over their ears, these, uh, these friends would come and they, they looked a bit like goats staring at thunder only because they couldn't believe that they actually, you know, they had 5,000 or 10,000 people in their town hearing about the Baha'i faith. Uh, so it seemed, I'm sure, a bit overwhelming. But, <laughs> They're like, what are we going to do with yes, all of this? <laughs> it's a whole new concept of follow-up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that sounds yeah. stressful. Um, so then how did, you, how did you get into directing and scoring? Because performing live is, is kind of yeah. more of an interactive approach where you're with an audience, you're feeding off of the audience. So then how did you kind of go into the, I want to say behind the scenes and start directing? Sure. Uh, you know, the the work with Seals and Crofts really opened so many doors and I got such a great training there. I had to learn, I mean, I'd learned some of this stuff. I, I knew how to arrange for orchestra. I knew how to write for uh, the band that we had, but then we would get opportunities to have a bit, you know, in places like Tanglewood and Atlanta and we did two weeks on Broadway at the Eurus Theater and you know we'd have a big string orchestra so I had to conduct and um, and uh, write arrangements and so it was it was a huge experience for me in terms of early life training early musical training practical training uh, and that really kind of prepared me and also I started really to write then because I'd, I was writing with Jalal but you know it was more ensemble writing whereas um, with uh, part of my time with Seals and Crops is every time we came off the road, then I had to do uh, uh, arrangements and produce demos for their publishing company called Dawnbreaker Music. So I, I was really schooled, uh, first of all, through Jimmy and Dash uh, in, in songwriting. You can't hang around with people like that and not um, get an education in greatness, right? In study, the study of greatness. Jimmy is probably one of our finest uh, poets and writers ever. I don't think anybody will, will touch that brilliance or come near it. And then after, after Seals and Cuffs, I got to work with uh, Kenny Loggins and Jimmy Messina, and that was another uh, interesting and wonderful education. And, and then I came back to Canada because, um, you know, our kids were getting to a school age and my wife didn't really want them to to grow up there, uh, which I, I understood, and I'm, I sacrificed and made made a decision to to stop touring and do all of that. Uh, but that that sort of forced me into just writing, and uh, and then I started to write for commercials. I started to write for news programs, and then I started to write for long form series and for. Um, for films, uh, documentary you know, features, and, and feature films, and that kind of pushed me into the. You know, I'd always been writing songs, but that really pushed me into, um, you know, writing on a daily basis and writing becoming sort of the core of what I do. I'm not sure I would have ever done it, Shadi, had I not had that experience with Seals and Crawford. You kind of went into children's programming after, was it during that period of time when you were scoring? Because I read a lot of, of your bio, it, it, a lot of it has to do with the well-being of children and, and catering to children. Um, could you share your kind of affinity with, with 
children and, yeah. and writing music for them? Well, I think it really was a, um, an inspirational thing because once you have children, you become very focused on then how can I write songs that can teach them something about these ideas, right? So the whole We Are Baha'is experience, which was the theme song for the children at the at the Baha'i conference in Montreal, the Baha'i teaching conference in 1982. That conference really was enlightening to me because it was really the first time that the community and the National Spiritual Assembly said, you know, we should really have some songs for children. We should write some songs and have some songs for children. And so that was really an, an inspiring idea. And the, the albums for children came out of that. Bahia Hanu. In sorrow and joy, she loved and she served like out of that came the, my recognition or my, my understanding that most entertainment that people make in North America, shall we say, is corrupt. <laughs> Sorry to be so blunt. I think you can most, say that. <laughs> most of it has to do with um, uh, violence and sex and extremes of behavior. And there's very little that's rewarding or uplifting or you, where you feel you know, certainly there, there, are, there are exceptions, and I, I, I'm, I'm in no position to be critical because, um, you know, I, I feel like that's the world and that's what people sort of seem to expect out of television, although I think it's gotten worse. Uh, and there's there are less and less sort of controls. And even Abdu Baha, one of the central figures of the Baha'i faith, said that, you know, that the world would come to a, a condition where people wouldn't even know right from wrong, right? So I think that that started to really affect me, and I couldn't do, I just couldn't put my, my heart and my soul into things that really were, that, that bothered me, right? And so the only place I could go was children's programming, and then I, so I started to develop. It's like a safe place. It just take place because there's no violence and there's no sex and there's no uh, cruelty. Does uh, the simplicity of it also, is it, do you think writing songs for children is, is simple or sometimes often more complex? I think you have to figure out. Um, I used to work a lot with a children's performer named Rafi. And I did <gasps> Rafi, some, really? I did some records. Can you tell with, us who Rafi is so that I don't sound crazy? Well, Rafi, is probably, <laughs> Rafi is probably the most famous children's singer in the world. He's, 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 he just did all of these wonderful albums, and they were called singable songs for the very young. And, uh, you know, he just, and he was such an example to me of how you could write songs that just were really about simple things, but they'd be memorable melodies. And he had such a warmth in his voice. He was the whole package. There was just this beautiful warmth in his voice and his sound. And he sang these songs that really felt they came from, from his heart. 
So as usual, you know, I'm a good follower. I'm not necessarily a leader, but I, feel, I felt like, boy, if I could get some songs like that for, <laughs> for my kids that had, you know, Baha'i lyrics or Baha'i ideals, uh, that would be a, <laughs> a great thing to do. So all those early songs, like We Are Baha'is and the Song of the Months and the Song of the Prophets and I still, I'm, tw- I'm almost 30 and I still use the, the month's song when I'm at feast to figure out which feast I'm at. <laughs> and some of the younger youth don't know what I'm doing. I'm like, guys, get on the train. <laughs> this is going to save your life. <laughs> yeah. so, so I think that, that a lot of those came from that place, you know, of just wanting to, have, wanting to write singable songs and also wanting to write songs about nice subjects. And uh, as Jimmy Seals used to always say, Surely we can do better than uh, baby. Uh, my baby left me. My baby loves mm-hmm. me. <laughs> Surely we can find something else beyond that, right? Yeah. Um, I just feel like we're like, you know, it's a challenge to artists, a challenge to songwriters. And I know that you're very engaged in this kind of work. I can tell from the music and songs you write. You, you want to find a way to express these ideas and melody and song. Um, harmonic and melodic structures that still are familiar to people, but in a way um, are illumined by these words of, of God. Right? And, and, you know, it's interesting because there's a little book uh, called What is Art by Tolstoy. And he says in there that all great art is both universal and inspired by a religious impulse. And he's the, the same guy that, you know, recognized Baha'u'llah as a, a person who had the key to the world's problems in a prison cell in Naka, right? So um, I think that, that you know, if we, if we try to measure ourselves, let's, and, and I know that artists are constantly doing that, we're constantly looking for an affirmation about the value of our, our work, or <clears throat> are we doing the right thing, are we... You know, you, you, you have this very good measurement in those two principles. Is it universal? In other words, is it for everybody? And is it based on a religious impulse? And the religious impulse is essentially selflessness, essentially to do uh, good, right? To make a bond. Religion, the original word means to make a bond. And so to make a bond between people, how does art do that? So you'd mentioned in a previous conversation that there were three themes that were universal for artists that are inherent and embedded in Baha'u'llah's teachings. You mentioned unity, beauty, and service. Yes. Could you yeah. could you elaborate on these three? Well, I think I think it's um, first of all, like everybody else, um, I struggle to understand how to do that in the world that we live in. Um, but I think if artists recognize first of all that. Um, their inspiration is God. You know, the, the greatest one of the great examples to me is Bach. Bach dedicated every piece of music he wrote to the glory of God. Um, it's, that's an astonishing fact, considering it's over you know, 300 years ago. <laughs> right? Uh, so so that, that, I think, is a, a crucial part of that impulse, so that you're doing it. Uh, when, you, when you're doing something for God, you hope you're doing it in the spirit of unity. Right in the spirit of universal love, yeah, uh, connecting like uh, the intention. Yeah, intention yeah. Is, is is loving. Intention is 
is universal. The intention is trying to create this bond, this mysterious bond between God and his creation, or God and his creation. I think that that's, that's a crucial part of it. That's, I think, where the unity aspect comes in. And oftentimes music does that for people without them knowing or being able to say, oh, that's what that is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, they can't articulate it, but that's what they've, that's what they've yeah, experienced. It's a, sense, yeah. it's a sense of wonder. And, sometimes, and I really feel that it's a sense of you're connecting people with the next world. You're connecting them with their future life. Mm-hmm. And when you do that, uh, then you're, you're doing what, in fact, Baha'u'llah says you should do with music. He says music is a ladder by which the soul of man can ascend to the supreme horizon, right? Mm-hmm. So the supreme horizon, I think, is a reference to the messenger of God, which is the closest we can get to God. Mm-hmm. But, but the fact is the music is like a ladder, which means it's a, a means of ascent to that condition or that state of being. And sometimes people describe it as, oh, you know, the music has created a kind of an alpha state, but it's really a state of harmony with, between the soul and its creator and, and putting the soul on that ladder so it can climb up and maybe see beyond the... Uh, beyond the daily dust, the daily cares, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, and preparing us for that that higher that higher yeah. nature that we will experience in the next yeah. world. And you know what Baudelaire said? He's a very interesting essay called Theophile Gautier. Mm-hmm. And in it, he talks about this, the impact of art and music. And he says, you know, such an interesting thing. He says, you know, um, Oftentimes when you hear something really beautiful or see something really beautiful, your heart is moved and you, you often come uh, to tears or what seems like an expression of sorrow. But he says they're actually, he says they're tears of longing. He says because for a second or a moment or whatever that is that you experience that, uh, he says that splendor situated beyond the tomb. <laughs> I've always loved that. Mm-hmm. So... If, if you can create something which lifts you out of this world of dust or the dust of everyday life that settles on the soul and you can actually see this, this splendor that he says is situated beyond the tomb, what we might refer to as heaven or you know, sometimes the Baha'is refer to it as the Abha kingdom, such a, an interesting phrase. But if you can see beyond through the, that, through the art for just that moment or feel that moment of those splendors situated beyond the tomb, he says, your tears actually uh, come from what he calls an irritated melancholy because the soul realizes that it can't hold on to that vision for more than a fleeting glimpse. It's too beautiful. Yeah. So then how does uh, expression of beauty come, come into this process? Well, I think that what, what we don't recognize is it. We, we see beauty in the natural world. We see it in the human form. We see it in trees. We see it in plants. We see it in the oceans. We see it in all these natural forms. And, and people often, in their, when they're in nature by themselves, they feel a sense of peace or a sense of awe. But that's just a reflection of the next world, which he says is the real source of beauty. So the real source of beauty is character. 
And the real source of beauty are the attributes of God, of mercy, of justice, of kindness, of love, generosity. Those, those are the real source of beauty. And the greatest beauty is, the, is that beauty which then appears in the form of the messenger of God. And, you know, one of, one of Baha'u'llah's titles is Jamali Mubarak, which means the blessed beauty, right? Mm-hmm. So beauty is sort of espoused as a, high, a very high aspiration for the soul. Uh, so beauty is connected to, uh, to a longing for that condition of purity of the soul. And that, that search for, like, l- looking, I find people are often attracted to beauty because they want to experience something, and you're sharing what that experience actually is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, again, you know, our, our forms of entertainment tend to want to imply that in sort of uh, the beauty of visual effects or the beauty of the human figure or the beauty of the human face or the beauty of, um, you know, something that, that um, you can see with your eyes. But oftentimes the greatest beauty is the internal, you know, the, the, the beauty of the soul, the beauty of the words of God. Like the words of God actually have a creative power to transform human life. They have intended that from the beginning. And even in the Bible it says, and in the beginning was the word and the word was God and the word was with God. So when you combine music with those words, you're playing with this and working with this thing of trying to create us uh, an amazing kind of link to the soul through these creative words, which have been with us from the very beginning. You know, this mm-hmm. is, this is really what, what the whole kind of um, challenges of, of the artist is how to connect with words that actually have creative power. Right mm-hmm. now, obviously, yeah. there's just instrumental music too, and that's a, that's a big part of what what we consider the heritage or the beauty and the heritage of, of humanity is instrumental music. But the greatest the greatest power is is the power of those words set to music. There's no question that 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 to me is the standard that we will all strive for throughout humanity's coming development, coming. Uh, unity coming fruition into a, uh, a golden age or a great civilization is the power of those words set to music that will have the, that will have the most influence on human beings. And so the last point that you'd made was is how artists should be of service in bringing this these words and these music to life. Yeah yeah it's 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 the key like if, if you think about the times when you've been happiest, is when you're doing something for somebody else. The feeling of, <laughs> of uh, reward or joy that comes from bringing happiness to someone else. Because we're social beings, you know, we're very much beings that are, and uh, Baha'u'llah says that in fact, we're, we're really one soul in many bodies. That's, our, that's what our, our aspiration or our goal is for the Baha'i community, is to create that level of unity. So it, 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 to me, it, that's why art really needs to be seen as service. Uh, music needs to be seen as service. Uh, it it's often turns into the, the worship of personalities rather than the worship of the art or the worship of the source behind the art, which is even more important. <laughs> you know, I, it, it's a tough one because... 
you know, uh, people need to be paid and they need to have a profession. And Yeah, all. so my question was like, do we just do it for free? <laughs> Is that what service means? <laughs> I don't like that. <laughs> I like to eat. <laughs> of course. And, and, and I mean it in the purest sense. I, mean, I know, I know. But if, if, if you're writing something and you're, and you're, you know, you call upon, you know, your sources of inspiration. I know people talk about muses, but I've always relied on, you know, I always say, I try to say a prayer. I remember even when I first started working with Seals and Crofts, it was so wonderful that everybody would get together and Dash would often say, uh, you know, the, oh God, uh, make me as a hollow reed prayer. Mm-hmm. Uh, about, you know, and, and what does that prayer say, right? It, say, it says, uh, don't make me as a hollow reed. The pith of self have been blown. Has been blown. Yeah. And, and uh, the pit itself has been blown, and that I may become a pure channel or a clear channel through which thy love may flow to others. Uh, that really, to me, uh, w- was such a wonderful thing to experience before playing and before doing something for people. So, sure, everybody needs to, to make money, make a living, but it's the spirit in which it's done. The intention, again, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think that's a big that's a big part of it, you know. Yes, definitely. Um, I think my last question just is more about composition and how you evoke emotion. Well, you know, it's uh, a, a big part of what I uh, of what I experience as a writer is that in, in the process, uh, I try not to be too. Uh, conscious. I try. I always try to say a prayer, or I at least try to acknowledge that I'm <laughs> uh, that I'm I'm pretty useless. <laughs> so that's a humble way to look at it. <laughs> so it would be it would be great <laughs> if you could make me useful. Right? Yeah, it'd be great if you could give me. Uh, an idea because I, in my work, I need to write, you know, it's pressure writing. I need to write, I'm compelled to write in terms of what I write for the things that I write for. Like I just finished writing 30, 33 songs for all the feasts and holy days as a songbook because I've wanted to do this for some time. So I had a very specific mission and I would, you know, sit down and I'd read all the writings about a certain attribute of God or I'd read about that holy day and as much as I could learn about the history of it. And then I would write a song and I've been doing it for the last year because it's, it's one of those things that's, that I, I get inspired by, that kind of an idea. So, but I ha- also have to write about 90 minutes of music a week for the various shows that I write for. And I don't get a lot of time, and I'm also in a room with, you know, musicians and programmers and engineers. And so you're you're on the hook because if you don't get the show done, the one-hour drama done, probably 65 cues in three days, then you're going to get behind and you're not going to get everything done. So that's a different form of writing. Um, and And that's what I call more reliance on craft. I do a couple of things. I get up very early every day and I play the piano. I play the piano for my disabled daughter because she doesn't speak or see. Uh, so it allows me to have a space where I can play um, and, and where I don't have to kind of um, 
think too much. <laughs> I can get my mind out of the way and just play play from my heart. And and you know there is the the challenge because uh, you know part, part of my feeling of uselessness is that you know I studied classical music and I studied classical piano, but I never went as far as I should have. I went through the Toronto Conservatory method. Um, I could have worked a lot harder. I practiced a lot when I was a kid, and then I got busy, and there wasn't enough time to practice, and then I got into writing. And um, I would have loved, loved to have um, been more developed as, as a musician because, you know, Ravel has a great quote. He says, art begins where technique ends. Mm. So you don't always have the fullness of training especially if you're from Saskatchewan, <laughs> from a farm. Right. Uh, you know, my mom really wanted all of us to learn the piano, and I was the only one that actually uh, uh, stayed with it, right? Yeah. Uh, so uh, I would have loved to have had more training, and I continue to train myself, and I continue to try. But your time gets more and more limited, right? And then, you know, I'm in my 60s, so I've also got limited time that way in terms of application of these ideas and principles and, and, and muses and all the sort of mysterious things that kind of whirl around your head uh, and your heart as you're, as you're trying to uh, create on a daily basis. And so I have some tricks that I do. I get up early and I play, and that, that helps me. I also try to... Uh, to listen a lot to, to other music and other influences. I try to study greatness. I study uh, Bach, uh, still preludes and fugues. And, you know, Bach was doing things over 300 years ago that are still, <laughs> you know, astonishing. Revolutionary, yeah. I was just yeah. in Vienna for some work, and I, I went to visit Mozart's house, and there's a room in his house that has a, a literally a, a 30-foot wall full of uh, like glass, mm-hmm. wooden, wooden wall with, with glass cupboards. And it's full of all the scores that he wrote in 36 years. My goodness. It's yeah. humbling. It's very humbling. Oh, man. It's kind it's of when, a- when you think about how much the Bob revealed in his short life. Yes. Yeah. And, and it's, it's that kind of brilliance, you know, Yeah. in, in the Baha'i teachings, it says that these great souls in the next world that are pure and detached souls like martyrs and prophets and uh, these, these great souls, they, they inspire the arts and the sciences in this world. Well, how do they do that? Well, they do it through instruments who are willing to be inspired, mm. <laughs> no matter what your capacity. Yeah. And there's this really great quote where Baha'u'llah says, no capacity is limited when led by the Spirit of God. So <laughs> despite my technical limitations, despite my musical limitations, despite my training limitations, mm. I still feel like I can be an instrument, right? And I'll yeah. try to be that instrument for my life because it's the thing that drives me more than anything is how do I become that clear channel? Like in that prayer where the pith of self has been blown out of the middle mm. of the reed and the reed is a hollow I read- reed. I read recently that um, in the writings of, I think it's Abdu'l-Baha or Baha'u'llah, he's talking about how musicians or the arts is translating the invisible into the visible. Um, but you're you're not you're just translating it. You're not you're not taking something that wasn't there before. Um, so these forces are still surrounding us, but but as as artists, we're channeling, like you said, these these forces into making them something that's relatable for for society and for humanity yeah that's beautiful 
Like yeah. I, that's really, uh, that's exactly what it is. And I think of, you know, some of our, our, our greats like Jimmy Seals and, uh, you know, Russ Garcia was an amazing example of this too. Um, they just, they, they did exactly that. They brought the invisible into the visible, invisible realm into the visible. And they expressed it in such a way that it stays in your heart, lifts up your heart. Um, you know, um, it's, it's just, it's one of the things that, that really, I think, should animate artists within it, within the bi community, but within every community. You, you know, look at look at the work of uh, of Andy Grammer and uh, how inspiring those songs are. Uh, mm-hmm. I think the, you know, they're so positive, they're so uplifting often, and um, and uh, oh, there's just so many people who have done that. Danny Steele's, uh, you know. Um, England and John Ford Coley in that, that period of time was, was, was another group that was doing that. Yeah. Uh, I, I listened the other day to Walter Heath's family record with uh, Jamie and Oak. Awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Luke, uh, Luke Slot's record is really inspiring, the last one. There's right? a new yeah, generation of, of musicians yeah, coming new, through. A whole new group of people. And I just yeah. think it's such an amazing thing that, you know, well, obviously we have lots of work to do. But it's yeah. an amazing thing that we have the, these in, amazing and great and inspiring teachings to sort of try to reflect out into the world. So we can't help but thank you for your intention and your service to the world through your art and through your skill as a musician. So Jack, I really want to thank you for your time today and sharing some of your insights and experiences um, and overflowing love um, that I felt throughout this interview for um, for humanity and for the faith. So I oh, really want to thank, thank you. Thank you much, Shadi. And uh, same to you, a great pleasure to, to get to spend some, some time and chat with you. Thanks so much for listening to Cloud9. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Feel free to check out Bahaiteachings.org where you can find more Baha'i-inspired podcasts, videos, and articles.